Now, another lesson from this is never, ever, ever go to court alone. Um, the plaintiffs here did go to court alone. They did this, uh, what we call pro se, meaning they represented themselves. Uh, and uh, that is always a recipe for disaster. Hello and welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Hey, Josh, we have uh, some special announcements going on right now over at uh, Church General Council. Uh, what's what's happening over there? That's right. We're not going to be saying Church General Council much uh, after uh, today because we're going to change things up. You know, I've uh, been talking to some folks, and uh, when I say Church General Council, they go, huh? <laughs> because nobody knows what General Council is unless you live in the legal world or uh, spend a lot of time in, in like corporate America. Uh, so we're changing uh, changing a name. Uh, we're still going to be doing the exact same thing, not changing anything that we do, but we are changing the name to the Church Law Group. Uh, everybody kind of knows what that probably entails when they hear that. Yeah. And so seems like uh, that's probably a better name for us, and so we're going to go ahead and do that, start going uh, with Church Law Group, and we'll be at thechurchlawgroup.com instead of Church General Council. You'll still be able to get to the website through Church General Council, but the new uh, new website will be thechurchlawgroup.com. Awesome. All right, well, let's jump straight into our Churches in Court episode. We didn't do one last month as we focused on adoption uh, for National Adoption Awareness Month, but we'll jump in and take up some cases uh, that have been reported here in the last few weeks. So the first one I want to start with is an insurance and contract case. It is Christ Church of the Gospel Ministries versus Guide One. This is a situation where uh, roof repair needed to be done on uh, a church. And as they were doing that roof repair, uh, it was not properly covered by tarps. Uh, and it rained, and then there was water damage inside the church, and they filed a claim against their insurance. And the insurance did not pay the claim. Uh, the issue here is that the contract in which the insurance policy um, was discussed and which governed this insurance policy said that the policy only covers water damage after a covered damage. Okay? So now we've got to get real specific in what these words mean. We've got to start peeling these things apart and trying to figure out exactly what was meant between the church and the insurance company. And what the court decided here was that intentional holes in the roof necessary to repair the roof is not damage. It's not covered damage because it's not damage at all. And so what the court did was dismiss the case altogether. Uh, the church lost that case. Uh, and so here's some things we can take away from that. First of all, number one, we got to make sure that we understand what is in our insurance policy documents. Uh, this is a contract, just like any other contract. You need to read it. I know it's boring, but you've got to understand what you're signing uh, and what's in your uh, insurance policy and what's covered and what's not covered. So I've got to make sure we do that. Second of all, when we hire a vendor to come in and do repair on our church facilities, one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we've got risk of loss provisions in those repair contracts. Uh, ultimately here, if there was a, a roofer, uh, a contractor who was in doing the work, then the contractor should be the one responsible for the water damage because that contractor did not properly cover the church in tarps. Um, but in this particular case, either there was no such uh, contractor, maybe the church was doing it by themselves, or 
Maybe uh, in this particular case, the contractor just wasn't uh, liable under uh, that particular contract because they didn't have a risk of loss provision, or it's possible that that contract assigned the risk of loss to the church. Uh, And so again, we've got to make sure that we know what we're signing. We've got to make sure we've got good contracts in place. This is not something to do on your own. This is something you really need to get a lawyer involved in. So let's move on to our next case. This is an assault case. This is SB versus Monument of Love Christian Life Ministry. Uh, In this particular case, and I'm seeing more and more of this uh, as society continues to devolve, uh, this was a case where a child assaulted another child. Uh, And uh, ultimately what the the plaintiffs did here, uh, they sued on behalf of their child who had been assaulted, and they sued the church based on a claim of negligent supervision of children. Now, in this particular case, uh, the issue kind of spun around um, whether or not uh, there was an actual duty uh, to uh, stave this off and whether uh, the church didn't do something that they should have done in order to supervise these children. And ultimately, uh, the court dismissed this case and the church ended up winning. But needless to say, we need to supervise children properly. Uh, there are certain things that we need to do in order to try and prevent children from assaulting one another. We can't really treat this as just daycare. Uh, we can't treat it as uh, something where one adult can watch multiple children. We really need to have multiple adults. We need to make sure we've got good processes and protections in place to uh, make sure children are adequately supervised. And so you need to have two adults. Uh, you need to have windows uh, in every room. Uh, you need to have an open door policy where anybody can step in at any time. Uh, you need to have a proper discipline policy, uh, policy on how to separate children, policy that makes sure children are always supervised, uh, except when they're going to the restroom and even then uh, that they're supervised appropriate to their age. Uh, but you've got to have those policies and those processes in place. And a lot of churches just don't have that. Uh, a lot of churches uh, will take a look at a, a uh, child protection policy and say, we do background checks and that's all we do. Uh, and and that, that's the extent of their policy. Well, you can't leave it at that anymore. You've got to do your background checks and so forth, but you've also got to make sure that there are policies governing how the people that you run those background checks on do the job that you, you've asked them to do and that they volunteered to do. And so that includes the proper supervision. That includes, here's how we handle toileting. Here's how we handle discipline issues. You've got to have those policies and procedures in place. And if you don't, you can find yourself in this particular situation again. Now, another lesson from this is never, ever, ever go to court alone. Um, the plaintiffs here did go to court alone. They did this, uh, what we call pro se, meaning they represented themselves. Uh, and uh, that is always a recipe for disaster. So never go to court alone. Some states you can't do that as a church. Uh, some states you can. And in those states where you can go to church alone, or when those states where you can go to court alone, don't do it. Not a good idea. All right, so let's jump on down to a negligence case. This is Seals versus Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. Here, we actually see a church that did really, really well. Uh, They had a really good process in place on how to protect itself. What happened was a bus driver was driving um, a bus on a church trip, and on the way to their destination, uh, the van suffered a flat tire, and on the way back, the van suffered uh, a flat tire or the bus. Uh, And ultimately, uh, this bus driver said that this caused him a serious uh, and significant amount of stress and um, ultimately that he needed to back out of a future trip that he had put a deposit down for and he wanted a refund of uh, that deposit. 
Um, he claimed that uh, these flat tires caused him anxiety and embarrassment and all sorts of other stuff. Well, ultimately, the church declined to refund the deposit because that deposit was necessary to secure uh, transportation. Uh, they needed to rent uh, vehicles for this particular trip. So uh, what this gentleman did was sued the church for that $60 and for an additional $25 million in uh, stress and punitive damages and so forth. Uh, now, the court found that the church was not negligent here, and this is really the key takeaway. We can um, you know, mince uh, words and, and you know, run all over issues with $25 million in damages. Sure, that's, that's excessive and not appropriate, but uh, ultimately what the court found here is that the church just wasn't negligent. Uh, and when we talk about negligence, in order to prove a negligence case, so if somebody sues your church to prove that negligence, they have to prove that the church had a duty, that the church breached that duty, and that there were some sort of damage as a result of the breach of that duty. And the court found that the church just didn't breach the duty. Uh, and the reason was is that they had maintenance records, they had schedules uh, of when tires were changed and when oil was changed and so forth. And they also found that uh, the transportation ministry had policies, that there was a policy in place so that um, here's what we do under certain circumstances. And everybody needs to know that. And then they had that policy in place. And one of the things on that policy was a pre-trip checklist that the driver had to go through. And so the driver had to check the tires. The driver had to check the air conditioner. The driver had to check the oil. The driver had to check the gas. And because the driver signed off on this pre-trip checklist, it was clear that the church was not negligent. If anybody was negligent, it was the driver because he was the one who was responsible for making those checks prior to taking this trip. So um, this is a great example of a really good way to, uh, to do uh, church policy. Uh, and certainly we have some of these same policies online at uh, Church General Council or Church Law Group, uh, thechurchlawgroup.com. Uh, you can find some of those policies uh, through our um, church hotline, uh, church law hotline plus uh, and premium. So go check those out uh, if you got a chance and you can you can see some of those really good policies. All right, next, let's jump into another contract case. This is actually a theft case. Uh, it is Dickens versus Rebecca Chapel Church. Uh, and here the church treasurer was accused of stealing more than $25,000, and she confessed to stealing that money. Now, the church wanted to uh, show grace. Uh, the church wanted to um, certainly recover the money that was stolen, but didn't want to um, you know, necessarily throw the book uh, at this church treasurer. And so what they did is they entered into a contract uh, where uh, this person was going to pay back $20,000 of it, and they were going to uh, write off the other six or $7,000 that were, that were stolen. Uh, and so um, the problem here was is that the church didn't file suit until more than four years after the incident. And in this particular jurisdiction, there was a two-year statute of limitations. Now, a statute of limitations is a law that says you have to sue within a certain time frame of the injury that you incur. Uh, and here, that time frame was two years, and the church didn't sue for four years. And so they, uh, the, the treasurer immediately filed a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, meaning the courts didn't even have jurisdiction to hear the case because the statute of limitations had barred the lawsuit. 
And uh, what the church ended up being able to do is they came back and amended their complaint and brought the contract into it rather than just suing on the theft. Um, and there was a longer statute of limitations on uh, the contract, and they were able to recover um, about $18,000 uh, and got a judgment in that case. So again, we need to make sure that we uh, are speaking to a lawyer anytime these things happen. Um, certainly, that's that's one of the first things they drill into an attorney at law school is you've got to make sure your clients understand the statute of limitations from the get-go. Uh, because if they don't and they decide not to hire you and they kind of rest on those um, rest on their lawyer uh, laurels and don't do anything with it, then uh, you as the attorney are liable for not telling them about their statute of limitations. It's malpractice. And so under these circumstances, they um, should have known the statute of limitations because they should have gone to a lawyer to begin with, and they uh, either did and didn't take that lawyer's advice in terms of the statute of limitations or didn't go to the lawyer at all. Uh, and so make sure you're talking to a lawyer when things like these happen. All right, well, let's jump into uh, a couple of religious liberty cases to wrap up the podcast. Uh, you know, we're heading into the holidays, and when you head into the holidays, uh, judges and lawyers go on vacation. Uh, and as a result, there were just not a whole lot of cases that came down uh, this month. But let's jump in and talk about a couple of religious liberty cases that we really need to pay attention to. The first one is the Satanic Temple versus City of Scottsdale. Uh, here, uh, the City of Scottsdale um, City Council uh, always opened up their city, city council meetings with a time of prayer. And so what happened was uh, the um, Satanic Temple uh, sent a message to the City Council and said, we would like to pray at uh, the next City Council meeting. And the City Council initially approved that request, but then turned around and denied it because the Satanic Temple and the party that was requesting it did not have a connection to the city of Scottsdale. They were coming out of Tucson or Phoenix or somewhere else. Uh, and they had had this policy for a while that said, listen, you know, if you want to pray, that's fine, but you've got to be, uh, have some sort of, of longstanding connection with the city of Scottsdale. Now, ultimately, the Supreme Court has said legislative prayer is okay, that it's okay to pray before Congress, it's okay to pray before uh, the city council meeting starts, or a county quorum court, or justice of the peace meeting, or uh, school board, anything like that, okay? It's okay to do that if it fits within a long-followed tradition, okay? And so when the U.S. Supreme Court decided this case years ago, um, it had been more than 200 years that Congress had opened in prayer, uh, and so you can open legislative meetings in prayer. It's okay to do that as long as it's it fits within this long-followed tradition. But it also cannot discriminate against various religions, okay? And so the, the government can't say, well, only Christians are going to pray at city council meetings. Um, they, they have to open that up to all religions. And right now... The city has lost this fight uh, so far, okay? There's still a lot of litigating left to do in the case, but as it stands right now, the city has um, lost several arguments in this fight. Number one, the plaintiffs were given the right to continue as proper plaintiffs. One of the arguments of the city was, well, uh, you're not even a proper plaintiff because you haven't been harmed, and there were issues of uh, real technicalities, but uh, talking about whether an issue is justiciable, which means that um, this is an issue that can come before the courts, whether... Uh, um, uh, a party had proper standing, meaning that they had been injured and, and the courts could relieve that injury. 
And so here the court said, yes, all of these are proper plaintiffs and all of them can continue. And it was five different parties um, that all kind of came under the satanic temple there in Arizona. Uh, the court was not ready to say that satanic prayer was not religious. Um, the, the court uh, didn't want to make that conclusion because that would uh, really require the uh, adjudication of what is or is not religious theology. Uh, and uh, so the court just said, you know what, I'm not quite ready to to make that determination that satanic prayer is not religious. And there really hasn't been a whole lot of case law on uh, that particular point. Is atheist prayer uh, religious? Uh, is it, so if it's not religious, it's not protected by the First Amendment, and these cases don't apply. And the court just wasn't ready to say that just yet. Um, one of the affirmative defenses that uh, the city raised was struck down, and it was really just not proper lawyering. It had to do with a motion to dismiss, and so that was struck down. Uh, there are still some other defenses uh, in play, but uh, right now this was just on a motion to dismiss, um, and the court denied uh, or declined to dismiss that case. Uh, there was a cross motion to uh, strike uh, that one particular uh, affirmative defense, and the Satanic Temple won that argument and, and struck that uh, affirmative defense. So again, lots of litigating left to do. Let's jump into one more religious liberty case. This is Bethel Ministries versus Salmon. Uh, and what happened here was this church uh, ran a school uh, in the church, and the school received scholarships for low-income students that went to that school, and those scholarships were paid by the state. Uh, and those scholarships, though, were conditioned upon non-discrimination based on sexual orientation. Now, the school believed in the evangelical and traditional view of marriage between one man and one woman for life, and they had a statement to that effect, and they still have a statement to that effect uh, in their statement of beliefs. It's in their student handbook. Um, but they had to sign an agreement when they started taking uh, these scholarships that they would not discriminate based on a person's sexual orientation. Um, so the scholarship administrators then started doing a review of every um, school that was receiving these scholarships. And when they came to Bethel Ministries, uh, they concluded that their belief in and of itself was discriminatory, uh, that it was enough to say, that they've violated their agreement to not discriminate uh, based on a person's sexual orientation. Uh, and so because of that, they revoked the school's eligibility re to receive uh, future scholarships. Uh, that required several students uh, to find a different school because they could no longer afford it. And then they demanded the school return over $100,000 in uh, scholarships that were previously awarded to the school. So the school uh, sued uh, the state there, uh, and this litigation uh, is pending. Uh, ultimately, here, uh, the, the school moved to, um, well, the, the city, excuse me, moved to dismiss the case, and the court said, no, we're not going to do that. And again, just like in uh, the Satanic Temple case we just talked about, there's a lot more litigating to do here. But there is something that we can learn from this case. Um, we need to understand that as churches, we can waive our First Amendment rights contractually, okay? And this has come up, um, there was a time, and I think they're still doing it, but Google would um, give nonprofits um, like $1,000 or $100 or $10,000, something in free advertising. Um, and it would be for any nonprofit, and so churches could take advantage of it as well, but they had to agree not to discriminate based on sexual orientation, 
Well, there are a whole lot of churches, uh, probably the vast majority of churches, especially those that are evangelical uh, and some of the mainline as well and Catholic churches as well, that are going to discriminate based on sexual orientation. They're not going to offer um, sacraments or ordinances to um, a same-sex couple, or they're not going to offer membership or leadership opportunities to a same-sex couple. And so that's discriminatory. Uh, and uh, and the church can waive that right, though, that, that right that the church has to discriminate based on a sincerely held religious belief. That can be waived contractually. And there's at least an argument here that this is what this school did, is that they um, contractually waived their right to, uh, to, to be exempt from certain discrimination claims. And um, what we need to see here is that this is one way in which the government is starting to um, kind of dangle a carrot in front of the church to move it off of its doctrinal positions. Uh, you know, there have been cases that were decided by the Supreme Court here recently uh, where, uh, for example, out of Missouri, uh, the this is the Comer case, and, and what happened there was that this church wanted reconstituted tire parts from the state uh, to put on its playground. And the state said, sorry, we can't do that. You're a church, even though this is also a preschool um, that entangles uh, to us too much with religion. The, the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, uh, that's correct. This 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 does not, um, or that's incorrect. This does not entangle the um, the the state with religion too much, and and the state of Missouri then had to provide those reconstituted tire parts. Now, the state of Missouri also could have said, "We're going to provide those to you so long as you don't discriminate based on religion or sexual orientation or anything like that." And if the church agreed to that, then the church is likely contractually waived its. First Amendment rights, uh, and that anti-discrimination policy is going to take precedence over the church's sincerely held religious belief under those circumstances. So we've got to be very careful. Again, we must read what are in these contracts. We've got to understand what rights we're giving up, what responsibilities we have, and things of that nature. Now, in this particular case, there's still the question of whether a belief alone can be discriminatory. Uh, the school is adamant that it has never uh, asked about a child or a parent's sexual orientation during the admissions process. The school is adamant that it applies its uh, sexual conduct policies equally and that there is to be no discussion of any sexual nature whatsoever within the school. Um, and so the question is, can a belief alone actually be discriminatory? I think that's a pretty weak argument. I don't think a belief can be discriminatory. Actions are discriminatory. Uh, and until they have something that's actionable, I think this is going to be a pretty weak case, and I think the church and school will end up winning this case. But again, there's a lot more litigating to do. So pay attention to your contracts. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with more uh, on uh, law and church. Be sure to go out uh, and do us a couple of favors. If you would, subscribe to the podcast. Give us a review. This is going to be a great way so that others can see uh, some of this great content uh, that you get. This is for free. We, we throw this out there. We want to make sure that churches are equipped and church leaders are equipped to live in a world in which the law is becoming more and more oppressive to the church, uh, where the church must follow the law much more closely than it has had to do in the past. And so uh, if you would, subscribe, leave us a review, share the podcast with your colleagues, uh, you can also go out to Facebook, find us at Church General Council uh, there on Facebook. We've also got the Church Esquire Club on Facebook where you can get some free resources. Those will also be available on our website here soon. Uh, so thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 
Josh, that is a, this is a lot of information and obviously, you know, a lot of stuff around contracts when it deals with, uh, with churches in general. So what are your kind of final thoughts on that? You know, churches have got to be real careful with contracts, and we've talked about contracts before uh, in going through churches in court, but we've got to be really, really careful um, because there, was, there were two cases here in which a contract was involved, one of which was the one of those religious liberty cases we talked about, and you can waive your First Amendment religious liberty rights by contract. Uh, and so, as was the case in the Salmon case, uh, you know, there the... Um, church was told, we'll give you these scholarships for your Christian school, but you cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Well, they've ostensibly waived a, a, a religious liberty uh, right, uh, that First Amendment right. Um, at least that's the argument. We'll have to see where that litigation goes, but that was at least the argument. And the, the second thing is, is that when we start dealing with contracts, we've got to be very careful about when we pull the trigger if the church is going to sue someone. Uh, and, you know, there was the case of the, the church embezzlement that we talked about. We've got to be very, very careful um, in making sure that, that we are meeting our statute of limitations, uh, that we're getting into court quick enough if we need to uh, recover. And I think it's uh, you know, fine to to seek redress from the government if necessary when the church has been wronged and victimized uh, by a crime, but you've got to make sure you do it in appropriate timing because if you don't, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Hey, Josh, tell me a little bit about the uh, the client suite that you guys have over at Church Law Group. Yeah, you know, it's common knowledge, and a lot of pastors would say this, and we've done some research that that say the vast majority of pastors agree with this that policies and processes protect the church, especially when they're documented. But at the same time, those same pastors will tell you, "Listen, that is very hard and very time-consuming work to keep up with all of those processes and policies." And so there are a lot of churches that are just operating in a state of vulnerability because they don't have good policies and processes in place. And so what churches really need here is a simple, affordable an expert way to make sure that their policies and process documents are in order. And so we have that at, at the church law group. We've got custom online policy manuals uh, that we call the church policy app. Uh, and it's a just a means by which everyone in your church can have access to your policy manual. It's online and it's easy to access and easy to change. But at the same time, you also get quick access to a lawyer through our church law hotline at no additional cost. And so uh, for as little as $60 a month, you've got access to an attorney and and you've got this amazing software that allows you to keep your policy manual online, customized, easy to follow, easy to track, uh, just a real simple and affordable way uh, to make sure your church is protected. And so that's our client suite. Everybody go check that out uh, at thechurchlawgroup.com. Just head over to the pricing tab, and you'll see the client suite there. Lots of great information, really great resource for the church. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links, everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week.